on this episode. When I left the house, I said, I don't want this anymore in my life. I don't want this nastiness and this partisanship. And everyone said, Barbara, your chance of winning the Senate are slim to none. And they were right. From the coveted corner booth in a little bar in the center of the Coachella Valley universe, welcome to another big conversation with Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Gentlemen, Welcome to another edition of Big Conversations Little Bar, recorded right here at the center of the Coachella Valley Universe, Skip Page's Little Bar. And today, for the very first time, because the weather's so perfect, we're actually outdoors on the big deck, as Skip likes to call it. (laughs) And we are delighted to be here. I'm here. My name is Patrick Evans. We're here with our producer, Mr. John McMullen. And, of course, my great co-host, Mr. Randy Florence. Thank you. Famous from his long career as a banker in the mortgage industry. Hey, it's taken me a while to get th- off of that and to get people to forget that's what I did for a living. <laughs> hey, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the country right now, but I know it's not like this. This is spectacular. And does anybody ever thank you as a local meteorologist for the good weather? I don't want them to because then I would somehow to take, have to take responsibility for the bad <laughs> for weather. The bad I'm not responsible for either. No, but I did notice you leave town a lot when you know bad weather's coming. You're darn right. <laughs> so that's the way to do it. Oh, it's going to be 122 next week. Now's a good time to go to Kauai. That's that's how that works. Got it. You know, we're really excited about uh, our guest today. And Randy, I want you to do the honors. Yeah, thank you for this. You know, um, my mom right now is sitting with a big smile where she is because this sentence is going to put a smile on her face. Recently, I got to attend the cast party for Michael Childers' One Night Only. And while that was amazing in itself, I looked over on the sofa, and one of my personal heroes and one of my mom's personal heroes was sitting there, and I'd like to introduce Senator Barbara Boxer to the show. Thank you for being here, Barbara. Well, thank you so much. I see we're at the Little Bar with Little Barbara. (laughs) Little Barbara, that's (laughs) a good one. Somebody was complaining yesterday this fabulous entertainer she's barely five feet I'm barely five feet and she said the first pe- thing people always say to her because she's so powerful her voice I could it's, um, it's just a godlike voice is I never thought you'd be so short <laughs> and if I could tell you how many times people say that to this day so funny well, it's a pretty cool thing to have Senator Barbara Boxer on our show, so thank you for this. It's a remarkable honor, and I got to meet you the very first time I think I had dinner with you through through mutual friends. You were still a sitting senator, and I just couldn't believe that I was sitting there. I'm like, there were eight people in the room. I'm like, How, uh, this is crazy. <laughs> uh, but it's it, uh, And I've had a chance to play golf with Stuart, your husband, on occasion, and he's always beat me. Uh, <laughs> that up. I will remind him. <laughs> well, Patrick won't play with me, so I've never been able to beat him. <laughs> At golf, I told either. You, you shoot the temperature in the winter. Yeah, I yeah, shoot yeah. the temperature in the summer, so I'm not playing with you. Forget about <laughs> it. Barbara, we're just really delighted to, to have you here uh, because, you know, I, I so thoroughly enjoyed your book, the, the Art of Tough. And you have so many great stories. And so we just want to peel a couple of them away sure. here today. Sure, sure. I want to start a little bit about, um, before we go way back, coming into the desert. When did you start visiting Coachella Valley and what brought you here kind of permanently? I think it's a great question because when I raised raised moving here to my husband, we've been married now 62 years. Oh, oh my holy God, congratulations. I know since I'm 18. <laughs> so I said to him, you know, after all these years in the Bay Area, which we love, we raised our kids there. And I said, you know what, honey, I think we ought to move to the desert and the first thing he said is what desert <laughs> he, he, did. he just said what what why and i said just think about it every time we've gone down to palm springs area we feel so happy and so good and so healthy and because he's he's a retired attorney and they always had yearly meetings in palm springs one of the hotels and we just loved it. And then when I became a senator, I started coming down here on business because Eisenhower Hospital wanted some assistance in, in getting some funds to uh, rehab some of their buildings, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked at some of the, um, the other issues, the roads, the highways, because I was chair of the Environment and Public Works Committee. So it just kind of crept into my thinking. And 
like he did when we moved from the East Coast a million years ago, mm-hmm. as in 1965, <laughs> he said, whatever you want, <laughs> which was really nice. Wow. And so we kept a place up there. We still have a little tiny place. And we, we, we moved to Rancho Mirage. We've been since a very long time, since 05. It's such a common story from the people yeah. we talked to. They just started kind of dropping in. And then one day it was like, why should we leave? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to know the story about moving from, because you were uh, born and raised in Brooklyn. Absolutely. Uh, and, and as was your husband, correct? That is correct. So what, what pulled you guys to the West Coast? Well, that's a great question. So you have to imagine two kids getting married. Uh, one is going through law school. We haven't got a penny to our name and <laughs> nothing. Our parents don't have anything. And um, I said, well, I'll go to work on Wall Street. I had a degree in economics. I got a job. I pulled down about $200 a week, which in those years wasn't too bad. We, it just shows you. We could afford an apartment in Manhattan for $175. Oh, my gosh. My right oh hand to God, I remember. Because <laughs> I remember saying, can we really do $175,000? And um, so... Um, I had a, a, a relative who moved to uh, San Francisco, Marin County, actually. And after uh, college, I took a trip with my parents because Stu couldn't go because he was in law review. It was a whole thing. He was at Fordham Law School. So I go with my parents. I come into San Francisco, and I'm like blown away. The only places I had seen, because remember, I'm in my 20s, but at that point, I saw Florida, which even before DeSantis, I didn't like it. <laughs> um, and, and, um, Shots fired. Just, it, was, it was too humid. It was like, yeah, it it's is too, so uh, humid down there. It's very pretty, but anyhow. Although so DeSantis I, yeah. has little to do with the humidity. I just, just wanted to... Just kidding okay. to all the Republicans <laughs> listening to us. It was just teasing. Um, so bottom line is I, I, I wind up there with my parents and Stu's not there. And I just was blown away. I'd just never seen anything like it before and fell in love. And again, one of these Stu Barber moments, I say to him, can we move? <laughs> and he says, well, who do we know? I said, well, this cousin, the sister, this, this. Yeah, but I don't know anyone. How can I get a job? He says, I'll tell you what. If I can get a job as an attorney two years in advance, these are the things, of graduation, we'll move. I said, okay. And he flies out there, gets a job two years in advance, clerking for a judge. I mean, it was all... There's a, there's a Jewish word, which I love. It's called bashert. It means it was meant to be. So it was meant to be. And we just move out there. I had no idea I'd go into politics. That was the last thing. I was going to continue doing investment advice, going to work for a mutual fund. And so then something happened. It was the Vietnam War. Wow. And it changed me. I said, I can't, I can't watch this in my living room every day. So in a way, Patrick, it goes to your, you know, your world where you bring things into the home. And that was the first war you actually saw what was happening. And I had two little kids and um, it was it was rough. I didn't want them growing up in that atmosphere. You know, that's I think a lot of people had just such a visceral reaction to the coverage of the Vietnam War. It was covered very differently because we were seeing, you know, real footage and it wasn't the carefully crafted newsreels of, of World War II or, or the, the cultivated coverage of, of the Korean conflict. It was real news and actual footage of, you know, our kids getting blown up. And, exactly. And also seeing the carnage that we were inflicting, right. which exactly. I think really brought it home for a lot of people that, that this was just not what the, the way we wanted the country to be going. Well, and maybe for the first time, <clears throat> looking at our government a little bit differently. You know, prior to that, almost every war we'd been in, we wanted to be there. Such a good point. Such a good point. It was shocking. And, you know, living through that time, um, seeing our guys getting slaughtered and, and women and children getting slaughtered, it was being in the middle of a civil war. I mean, that's, that's what it really was between the North and South. And it was... To me, it just changed me. I had minored in political science, and I loved history, and 
economics was my major. I never thought I would wind up doing what I wound up doing. And I started to volunteer in campaigns where I knew if we had a different senator, if we had a different president, it could make a difference. And one thing led to the other. And what a crazy story. I mean, again, it just... uh, These days, it's quite different for young women, thank goodness. If you're thinking about careers, you could put down politics as a career. When I was growing up, there was one woman in the Senate, Margaret Chase Smith. And my mother used to say she was a liberal Republican and she smoked little thin cigars. (laughs) And my mother used to say to me, honey, can you imagine what it would be like to be her? with all those men thinking they know better than she does. She she was remarkable. Then when I ran for the Senate, all those years later, after five terms in the House and six years in local government, Diane and I made history. First two women, we walked in there. The press said, year of the woman. Yes. But (laughs) could I just say what an overstatement that was? We did triple our numbers, but we went from two to six. Right. And there were 94 guys. Yeah. So that was, you were elected to the Senate in 93. 92, took, and, the, took the vows in 93. Yeah. Stayed there and you served from 93 time. to 2017. Correct. So uh, four terms. Long term. And in 2004, you set the record for the most votes ever for a U.S. Senate candidate. Over six million. First candidate to get to over six million yes, in the state yes. of California. It was quite something. Well, uh, I, yeah, go ahead. I want to go back to... Uh, you, you were in local politics and then, then the House. So talk a little bit about how you got, how you started your career moving into politics uh, at that grassroots level. Yes. I'm still a grassroots person. Believe me, I think that's... <laughs> I saw you at. on television on Martin Luther King Day. Yes, yes. <laughs> Marching. So yes, yeah. I know you are. Yeah. I mean, as long as you've got a heartbeat, a heartbeat and a pulse and you care, you've got to get off the couch. I mean... Even with COVID, just wear a mask and do it. But, I mean, I've always felt that way. But how did it happen is your question. Um, Okay. So, essentially, once I realized I was interested in what was going on in the world, rather than just a small cadre of, you know, people, I recognized that I had to help other people. So I started off getting involved in campaigns, helping other people. And one of the people I helped was a a guy named John Burton, who ran for Congress. Um, And he he won. And after that, I worked for him for a couple of years. And what I learned working for him, it was great. We had a thing one day. There was a big event at San Quentin Prison. Oh, my God. And um, I said to him, John... You know, conditions there are horrible. It's not helping anything. It's uh, turning out more criminals. And they've invited you to, uh, to go to, to meet uh, the inmates and talk about what's happening. And he said, you go. When the shooting starts, I'm right behind you. He says, I don't want to go. He says, I got too much on my plate. You go. I said, you sure? He said, Yes. So, not to get into too much detail, but it was really memorable. I'm sitting in the prison dining room, okay, and I'm trying to be very um, sociable, and I turn to the guy on my left, and I said, what are you in here for? And he says, murder. Maybe John was right. Uh, But anyway... I get through this thing and the prisoners are saying, you know, we really want to better ourselves. We want more education and blah, blah, blah. So now fast forward, I talk to John. I say, John, the inmates are very clear on what they want. I have a suggestion for a bill. And he said, you know what? It's just not in my lane. He says, I, I, and that's when I realized I had to run for office. It was wonderful working for him. He was wonderful. But look, I knew what I wanted to do and when I wanted to do it. So then I ran for the Board of Supervisors in Marin. I lost my first round. It was very humbling and very good at the end of the day to lose, even though I'm being a Pollyanna now. Mm. Then I wasn't. (laughs) Then it was devastating. I wasn't happy. Um, And my kid, Doug, (laughs) who is now a great lawyer, he's got his own kids who are teenagers, he was a little tyke. And I was very afraid to tell the kids that I lost because, you know, I knew they'd be, because it was very much a community thing. 
I was worried that Doug would be upset that I lost, so I call him over. He's seven. <laughs> and I said, Doug, I just have to tell you, the kids are gonna may make fun of me and you because I lost. They could say I'm a loser. And he's listening very intently, looking at me. And I said, it doesn't mean anything. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, you know, whether it's sports or politics. Is a pause, and he goes, Mom, could you make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? <laughs> that kid, he could not care less about. So these lessons that I learned, you know, from that loss were so funny. Um, and I often remind him of that. I said, thank you for keeping my feet on the ground, you know. That is very, uh, that, that's very grounding. To <laughs> well, yeah, you get so full of yourself, and you think everyone's thinking about what you're doing for a living, and... Guess what? Into other things, especially the kids, um, you know, as far as that goes. So um, at the end of the day, after I lost, I went to work for a newspaper and I was... Oh, that's right. You did a stint as a reporter. I did. And it was terrific. It was so good um, for me because I was able to report on the people who beat me. And (laughs) (laughs) that that was my beat was Marid Supervisor. And it it was just great. But then I thought... I'll give it another whirl, and I, um, and I ran and won that second time. Yeah, what was the yeah. difference? Why were you successful yeah. the second time? Many people have that story. Um, Richard Nixon ran four times before he won. I mean, that's too much. My friend, my, <laughs> Some people thought so. No, I mean, and, I, and, I and arguably, when he, running as often as he won, that was too much. But it that's, was, it's very hard. It, I, I mean, I admired it. My friend Dick Durbin ran three or four times before he won. My but father I, ran for the Board of Supervisors in, in Virginia, and he lost his first time around and then won subsequently. Yeah, you it, have it, to give it a second try. Yeah. You have to. Um, after that, my own view is no. I mean, enough is enough, but enough rejection. <laughs> Two strikes and you're out? That would <laughs> well, have been. It's, a, it's just enough rejection. And it is rejection. You it know, is, yeah. You realize that no matter what. You could say things like, I was ahead of my time. and you know, <laughs> no. All of these great things. but They didn't blame, vote for me. Or yes. blame somebody else. Right. But the bottom line, they didn't like you as much as they liked the other person. All of my races were, were really difficult, but... But I think the lessons I learned, uh, humility by losing once was very good for my soul and my character. Um, and, and then all the races were very hard. Nothing came easy, actually. And a lot of pundits predicted I would never, ever make the Senate race. I mean, I was uh, an asterisk in the polls when I, when I ran. I, I was reading in the book. Um, let me find it here. Oh, the places you'll go from Dr. Oh, Seuss yeah. meant something special because you were considering dropping out of the Senate race. No question. Yeah. I was so discouraged. There was this quote-unquote check scandal in the House. You may remember. Oh, I remember mm-hmm. the check scandal. And the House of the House Banking. Yes. And th- this was a huge, in quote, scandal. The scandal was that we got automatic overdraft protection without paying for it. That's the easiest way I could describe it. So as soon as the scandal hit, I never was good at my checkbook. (laughs) And I knew I was going to get hit. So I immediately paid like $10 a check for the checks over the six years, however many there were. But the press went nuts. And they followed me around to the airport and said, let me see your checkbook. And I said, get out of here. You know, who do you think you are? And... Here's what I did, and I think it was such, it was a smart thing to do. I was totally honest. I called a press conference, and I, well, first of all, I decided I couldn't take it anymore. That's what you were referring to. And I said, I'm dropping out. I don't need this in my life. This is horrible. People are following me. They're calling me terrible that I bounced checks, which I never did. And I just called my husband who never was involved with my career. He doesn't, he's just my friend. You know, he doesn't get involved like a lot of spouses. And I said, don't <laughs> tell the kids I'm dropping out. I can't. And my kids were in college at the time, so, or young working in the workforce. Um, I can't take it anymore, and I'm dropping out. I'm really happy. I'm really ha- I was. I said, I'm really <laughs> Thrilled, happy. Relieved. I'm, I was. I said, I've had a great career. It's all good. And, of course, behind my back, which he still won't admit, he called the kids. And he said, you've got to come home, because one was already working, the other one was at Berkeley. They came home. I come home. I'm about to make this big announcement, write the press release. And the kids come down, 
They say, what are you doing? And my daughter says, you're one of the, you and Diane will be the first two women ever elected. You're going to show how weak women are. You're going to drop wow. out. And who cares if you don't make it? You got to try. And I said, oh, no, I'm, that's it. And then they read me this book, The Places You Go, which I recommend to everybody, kids and adults, you know. It's a great Sometimes book. it's great and it'll be easy. It sometimes will be hard. And it got a little teary in the house. And I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And then I called a press conference and I said, look, I admit it. I'm terrible with my checkbook. It's a negative about me. So what I want you to do, remember those years there weren't that many computers. I said, just take a yellow pad and draw a line down the center and write good things about Barbara Boxer, bad <laughs> things about Barbara Boxer. And start with the bad things and say, she doesn't balance her checkbook and that's sloppy. And I could also tell you with my own accord, my closets are messy and you can add that because I know I'm just not good at that. But what am I good at? You know, fighting for the environment, fighting for the children, fighting for you. And you decide. And it was a smart thing to do because mm -hmm. people went, yeah, nobody's perfect. You know, she's bad at that, but that doesn't impact me. Well, and I got, I won. Yeah. And no one ever believed it. I, it was remarkable. It's a very humanizing moment yeah. for you, you know, and, and suddenly become oh. become real to the voters <laughs> and you become one of one of us. True. And I think one of the problems a lot of politicians have today is they don't show their human side. Yeah, I agree. Um, and nobody is perfect. If somebody comes to you and they're making the case, I'm great, I have the perfect this and I have the perfect that. No, nobody. Everybody's struggled. And, you know, our president has had more battles and struggles from his stutter growing up to the tragedy in his family. The and car accident. The, the, oh, the, my God. Uh, so awful. As, a, as a, such a young man. Losing a son after the son served in Iraq and then having the other one be addicted and, and, and get in all this trouble. This is heavy on his heart. And, you know, again, weakness or strength. I, I think I heard somebody was campaigning for Joe the other day and he said, every time any of this happened, he dealt with it and showed up for work. Wow. And it made him more empathetic. So, you know, it is what it is, but... For me, again, it, that my kids playing this role, they always laugh it off. You know, they go, oh, mom, maybe you would have done it anyway. No, I wasn't going to do it. And they turned it around and it liberated me in a lot of ways because I recognized I'm going to be open about the fact that I have flaws and, and I'm going to give it my best shot. Barbara, it feels now like that's Senator Boxer to you. <laughs> no, Barbara. Now I'm in a different phase. It's Barbara. <laughs> We're pretty close by this time in the podcast. Um, it um, oh, now I forgot my question. I'm a really old guy. Thanks a lot. Um, you you now nah, go ahead, Patrick. All right, I, I do have some questions. So you spent 24 years in the Senate. Correct. Who were some of the favorite people, the, the senators that you got to work uh, shoulder to shoulder with? Okay. Well, the first one I'm going to tell you about is Barbara Mikulski. Barbara Mikulski was the first Democratic woman ever elected in her own right. Because when I say that, you're going to, well, what do you mean? Yeah. Because most, believe it or not, women who came to the Senate before Barbara and to the House, their husbands kicked the bucket. And that's how they got there. Honest to God, if you look at that. So she was the first Democratic woman to get there in her own Right. In other words, she didn't have a husband, she didn't have a daddy, she didn't have an uncle. So she was something else. First of all, she's the only person shorter than I in this whole <laughs> Senate. I mean, I hardly make five feet. In my heels, eh, five two. I think Barbara, who never wears heels, like four ten-ish. Wow. So did you always make sure she was next to you in she, the picture? Yes. <laughs> we always uh, saw eye to eye, as we say. But... Um, but she used to, she was the funniest person. She still is around. She's fabulous. She, she always said, Barbara, we can go eye to tie with those guys. <laughs> eye to tie. <laughs> <laughs> and she would have these great, um, she, she, she was, a, ran her last race against a very talented woman. I'm 
the name escapes me now, she was a very good candidate, and so she'd say to her constituents, Barbara, are you worried about this person? And she'd go, we're going earring to earring. (laughs) (laughs) She always had some wonderful uh, comments. Her sense of humor, which I find is essential in that line of work, because if you take yourself too seriously, so that's a long answer, of course. I'm a former senator, too long an answer. Barbara Mikulski, she was really a mentor and and friend, because I had served with her in the House prior with Jerry Ferraro. And, and she preceded you to the Senate by she a couple did. of years. Yes, she did, by several years. And she was there with Nancy Kassenbaum, uh, the Democrat and Republican, only two women when we arrived. And as Barbara called us, the reinforcements. <laughs> she say, she go like this. She said, some women look out the window waiting for Prince Charming. I'm looking for some more women senators. <laughs> <laughs> she had, I'm telling you, a saying for everything. I love her to this day. Um, so that's Barbara. Now, on the, on the, there's so many that I loved. Uh, Ted Kennedy was a, was a great mentor. He was very influential with me because he was the lion of the Senate. Every big issue he seriously had under his wing because of his uh, committee assignment. So, you know, whether it was jobs or whether it was environment, whatever it was, he was in the middle of it all, um, and and also foreign policy. So, uh, with the war in Iraq, there were only 23 of us who voted no. I was one of them. Um, Kennedy was really leading us at the time; was at the peak of his power. But he knew he wasn't the right face for it. Mm-hmm. He wanted a Robert Byrd, who was a much more conservative from West Virginia. West Virginia, yes, used yeah. Used to be very big segregationist and change, but he was, very, you know, from West Virginia. So he'd say to me, Barbara, how do you get along with Robert Byrd? I said, just great. He said, look, I don't want him to know. I think I wrote about this in my book. I'm not sure. I, I, uh, I don't want him to know that I'm behind this anti-Iraq war movement. Will you go and ask him to lead it? Mm. And I said, sure, but don't mention my name. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we've gone around about for too long. So I go, and I go to Bob, and I said, Mr. Chairman, he was the chairman of the All-Powerful Appropriations Committee, would you lead the charge against the war? He said, I would be so happy to do it. Mm. So uh, it, that's the kind of guy Ted was. He he knew to w- how to win, and he taught me how to win, tell, which is you don't me, do it on your own. You have to have a coalition. Tell me if I'm wrong, but as, as you said that, it seems to me almost that that was right about the time when we started to lose people who were willing to walk across the aisle and work with other people. Am I any, close to correct there? I think on the war in Iraq, no, that wasn't the issue because <clears throat> there were so few of us. But I just mean in general. You know, now it just seems oh, like I think it started you either have to wear red or you have to wear yeah, blue. It started and that's before it. that with Newt Gingrich. Did it? And I do write oh. about that. And it, it, Those things take a long time to fester. Mm-hmm. And what Newt was, you know, we all want to win and, and, and lead. I don't blame anybody for that. We all want to win and we all want to lead and we want to get reelected and we want to have more power to do the things we think are good. So I don't worry about anyone wanting that, but it's the way he did it. He uh, had a whole vocabulary toward Democrats that we were um, treasonous, that we were unpatriotic, that we were soft on crime this and that. I mean, every ugly word. And they actually hired a guy who, I'm missing his name for the moment, who guided them on the language to use. And I hate to say it, you know, they were very successful in those years of Newt Gingrich. And then, of course, he becomes the speaker and gets run out on a rail because of his misdeeds. But that's what started it. And frankly, so that's 19... That's when I left. in the mid-80s, right? Well... He started really ginning it up in the early 90s is when I left 
the house. I said, I don't want this anymore in my life. I don't want this nastiness and this partisanship. And everyone said, Barbara, your chance of winning the Senate are slim to none. And they were right. I mean, who honestly, was the candidate that was running against you? Who did you run well, against? Well, Leo McCarthy, who had been a longtime lieutenant governor, beautiful guy, he had 50% in the early polls. And then Melvine was another congressman, also with a big following and a lot of money that he had. I was literally, it was 50% for Leo, 10% for Mel, and asterisks. <laughs> I didn't even measure. And, but I did it for the right reasons. And little by little, and I'll tell you, I think, what allowed me to win, it was Anita Hill. Mm-hmm. Because that was the time in 90, early 90s, 91, when people saw through the Anita Hill hearings, Clarence Thomas hearings slash Anita Hill hearings, they saw they were zero women. <laughs> and it was an old, old boys either, club. On either side of the aisle. Uh, on the Judiciary Committee. They had never realized that there were only two women in the Senate. And so I had people call me and say, Barbara, I wasn't going to support you. I was supporting Leo. But after I've looked at what the Senate looks like, I'm going to support you and Diane. And of course, that was shocking because we've got two women from wow. the Bay Area, two Jewish women from the Bay Area. <laughs> That's just a bridge too far. And people would say things like that to me. And I go, well, you voted for two Protestant men forever. What's, give it up. That's right. What is your problem? You know, and so what I learned about that was how you have to take prejudice and turn it around and use a sense of humor. It's a good way to cut through it because people go, oh, I never thought about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you love working with Barbara Mikulski. You, you love working with Ted Kennedy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who are some of the others that? Well, I loved, slashed, or hated John McCain. That's the kind of, <laughs> we had a relationship. I write about it in the book. That was so funny because we really liked each other. But when we had totally different views, it got heated because that was him. I mean, it wasn't me. He was that way. And he once threatened to bar me from a committee because he was mad about it. And it had to do with uh, government censorship of, uh, of uh, movies, which I was against. And he was for having them labeled by the government. Mm. And it was bipartisan. I mean, I was, again, in the minority on the thing. and uh, But we won at the end of the day. And he was so mad. He said... How dare you uh, say what you said and da 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 da, and you're banned from the committee? I said you can't ban me from the committee. <laughs> and he said I'm the chairman and I decide who goes and da da da. So I went to my bestie Joe Biden, who was his best friend, and I said, Joe, can you believe this? I'm going up to the press. This I do write about the book. I'm going up and having a press conference. I'm saying John McCain's lost it. And he shouldn't take it out on me just because that's the good. And, and Joe says, take a breath. He says, calm down. I'll take care of it. Don't go up to the press. This is amazing. Wow. And he says, I'll get a note from John. And sure, sure enough, John wrote a note. I'm sorry I overreacted. And Joe, that's the thing people don't know about him. He is... He brings people together because he has so much credibility on both sides. But I loved working with John when I could, which was on um, issues of reforming the military, military to help women and things like that. We worked very nicely together. And immigration, he was one of the greatest on that. Unfortunately, the problem festers. Yeah, we, we, we haven't solved it. No, but uh, it's not that hard to solve, Patrick. It's will. Guess who the last one was who did it, who signed the bill? Guess. The broad immigration comprehensive Ronald Reagan. With amnesty. Yes. You're a star. That's right. And guess who was in the house that, I hate to say it, me. (laughs) I was a freshman. (laughs) And he did it. And he also was the one who signed Martin Luther King Day. Yes. So when... And appointed the first woman to the... Supreme Court. Sandra Day, who was beautiful, wonderful person. So, you know, this Republican Party has changed so dramatically well, people, after Newt Gingrich. People freak out when they learn that, you know, Nixon created the EPA. Not, who would have thought he that did. a Republican would create the EPA? And, and the Clean Air Act amendments were signed by George Herbert Walker. Yes. It's it, it was shocking. a different country. Well, it, was, it wasn't, you know, as Joe Biden says, it's not your grandpa's Republican Party. And it's, um, 
I'm hopeful that we forget about party labels and that what we do is step forward and go toward the center. Yeah. It, it is the only way to go. We cannot govern from far left or far right. Yeah, either either extreme doesn't work. It does not work. And I know that because I got a lot done and I did it because I was able to walk the center. Case in point, it's a simple point. I got a million acres in wilderness here in California. So proud of it. But guess what? The environmental groups wanted two million. And I looked at the thing, and I went to the various house members whose districts these wilderness areas are. I knew I couldn't get the two million; could only get the one million. So I go to some environmental group who I love to this day and say, "Listen, it's either a million acres or nothing. What do you want to do? We don't want anything. We want you to hold out and yada da da da." I said, "No, I'm not doing it because I know I want to have a million acres forever." They were wrong on the point. So, you know, you have to, when victory's at hand, say thank you. <laughs> you yeah, know? take yes for an answer. That's a better way to put it, yes. I want to ask you something because I think this is going to be big, huge news coming up in the near future. In 2004, you voted against certification of the Ohio presidential election. And, and you said at the time that your ra- reason for doing it is that you wanted to protect the integrity of elections. That's what we've been hearing for the last five years. That's not what I said at all. No? No. You have to read it. You can see it. What I said was that the Black Caucus and I, they needed one senator, were going to take two hours of time, which is allowed under the electoral law, to express our concern of voter suppression in black areas Mm. in uh, Ohio. Ohio. Was that the John Kerry election, 2004? It was. Yeah. And I worked with Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, who had been a judge. She then became a congresswoman. And she came to me and she said, Barbie, have you seen the papers on this? I said, no. People stood in line 12 hours in the pouring rain. And it was so sad. And what had happened in that state, there... Um, Secretary of State just didn't have enough machines in the poor communities, blah, blah, blah. I said in my opening statement, quote, this is not an attempt to overturn an election and I am not asking for anybody's vote. I just want to take these two hours to present what happened. Now, the far right is going, Barbara Boxer, she tried to overturn the... I didn't. (laughs) I specifically said... This has nothing to do with it. So, yes, they make it a thing, and I go, no, no, you're, revi- you're revising history. Thank you for clarifying yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, it was actually one of my bittersweet moments I've had because the roses that I got from the community, thank you, no one talks for us, no one, no one, no one. Wow. Yeah, it was very uh, uh, wonderful. Did not get one other vote. <laughs> Other than myself, because that's what I said. I wasn't interested in overturning it. And that's the difference. And, um, you know, a lot of colleagues were very proud of me and said, we're so proud we're not voting with you, but we're glad you used these two hours to bring this to our attention. One last point. After that was over, uh, Hillary Clinton and a couple of other people, including a couple of Republicans, worked with me, and we, we, um, we tried to pass legislation that said, you can't allow people to stand in line for more than an hour or two. And after that, you have to get more options for them. Never, never got there. It had hearings, but it didn't pass. It's difficult because localities manage their own election rules, and it's, it's very hard, I think, at the federal level to, yeah. to pass those kinds of laws. But Patrick, in federal elections, there are laws that apply, the Voting Rights Act, and um, there are laws that say you have to be fair and just and no discrimination. But that one, yeah, is being used by the big lie folks now. I get it. And I'm up for it. <laughs> She's ready for that. All right. Let's talk. Uh, you, you retired from the Senate in 2017. Yeah. And, but not really retired <laughs> because you continue uh, 
you know, fighting the good fight <laughs> where you, you know, you're picking and choosing your battles these days. For sure. Uh, so talk a little bit about what you've done since leaving the Senate. Oh, yes. Um, the opposite of my husband. Once he left his law practice, <laughs> he was done. He just said, "I've been working since I'm ten years old when I was a soda jerk, and I'm not going to do." And I said, "I don't. I still, you know, have a heartbeat, a pulse, and I'm my brain's functional. I am not giving up on anything." <laughs> so when I left, first I I gave speeches all over the country on different issues that, of the moment until COVID hit, and then that kind of went out. They did a few on you know, Zoom, but that's not the same. I taught a class at USC um, on politics. Um, it, the whole idea was, it was called demystifying politics and government. Kind of like we're trying to do here today, demystify. <laughs> in and, a bar. You know, in a bar, which <laughs> it's not a bad idea. This is where um, demystifying happens. <laughs> so um, did lots of those speeches, taught the class, but then because COVID hit, I taught the class online that was so hard to do but even so it was it was good and so usc asked me if i would go on their advisory board so i'm on their advisory board the uh, politics of the it's the center for the political future it's a bipartisan uh arm of usc so i'm loving that and they also um one just kind donor set up a chair for me so there's a barber boxer chair and it goes to wonderful people this year it's a woman who's formed moms against gun violence and she's teaching a class on how to organize so and so forth so that's over there i do a lot of um i do f for work work i do strategizing so if people in a lot of healthcare. Uh, people want my help and it's been really great for example one of my clients is a, a translation service and it's pretty amazing and it's, it's sort of a combination the best of ai and humanity you you if you don't speak the language and you're in trouble and you're going to the hospital you get this real person on your phone and to, to get you through the whole thing so that's a wonderful that's example. a great idea yeah it's an example um that's a great company. Hmm. And, you know, I'm doing things like that. I say no to some. I say yes to some, depending on what I want to do. And then I do with my friend Terry Ketover, who I know you guys know. The door Terry. She's pretty amazing. And Bart. I mean, yeah, they're both amazing. She is just the most incredible giving person I know. And together we're working on two projects. One she created um, called Do the Right Thing. And it's uh, lifting up kids. Um, in our community here. Our TV station is a sponsor of and, that. And, and, and they're fabulous. Sandy and the, thing, yeah, the work that she does. And it is remarkable to see some of these kids who, some of them, you know, are broken homes. They have nothing. They step up to do the right thing. And so what we're finding is as we uplift these people and recognize them for the good things, it changes them going forward. And because we do too much when people do bad things. Yeah. When kids do bad things, we're in a gang. And this. How about lifting them up and giving them that attention? So that's one thing. And she created that in 1990. And it's in all these cities all over. And she brought it to Palm Springs. So that's great. The other thing we created together is an essay contest in the Palm Springs Unified School District aimed at middle middle school kids and I came up with this idea during COVID let them write about something they've overcome and how they did it and how they can help other kids overcome we thought 90% would be about COVID it wasn't it was um, my dad beat my mom and Ooh. then you know he left and I'm alone and or I'm gay and I'm afraid to say it and things that you just that's got to break your heart it, it break it, it does yeah but here's the thing they write about it which in itself is getting it off your chest yeah, and it's sharing cathartic, absolutely. it sharing it and then when we give the prizes out we ask them do they want to be anonymous they want to be identified we make the book up with beautiful covers it is so wonderful and um you know i'm just absolutely uh, thrilled barbara you, so you, we do that once a year you touched on something that reminded me of something else I want to talk to you about. You, you have always been a champion of the 
disempowered, um, disenfranchised. Yeah. You were a co-sponsor of the Matthew Shepard Act. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that came together? Yes. Um, for those who don't remember, Matthew Shepard was <laughs> harassed, f- followed, harmed brutally on a fence. Beaten to death. Beaten to death. The worst that you could just start crying and thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And um, his family came, and I'll never forget it, uh, to the Congress to talk to the members of Congress. And uh, at those years, you know, it was, was not like now, thank God, where you can be open about uh, your sexual orientation. And they fought hard, and we got this, this bill done. So, so it, it, it creates a federal crime and also tougher penalties if you dare harm someone because of this. What a, yeah, you know, the pain that I saw... Um, Always, even as a child, you know, I grew up lower, lower middle class, and and my my mom, who never even had a high school education because they were so poor, she had to go to work as a secretary, and she was so smart, and you know, she would tell me never laugh at anybody, never point a finger at anybody, never make fun of anybody, because it could come back to you, and how would you feel? And she was powerful, and. I go nuts, you know, when I saw my kids in any way, do, and so we passed that on. But then the larger family of the country, and I hate to bring it up, and I, I don't, I didn't want to say, the former president making fun of disabled people. If anything made me nuts, I can't take it. The people who need us are the people who are struggling like this. And I don't only mean politically, I mean in a human sense. And um, we're all God's children, for God's sakes. And what always gets me is people who say they're religious are the first ones to be taunting people. No, that's not right. And, you know, if you believe in God as I do, there's a reason why everyone looks different and sounds different and loves differently. So embrace it. And you don't have to understand it. You know, a lot of times you go, I don't even get that. It's not your place to get it. it it's humanity. So embrace it and help it. Thank you. And, and thank you for that work. That was so important. That obviously was a piece of legislation that meant a lot to you. Talk about some of the other landmark legislation that you were involved with that, that you look back on and say, I'm really proud that I was in that work. I have to say Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act as it is called by people who don't like Barack Obama. (laughs) Um, But the stories behind, I I, I wrote about this in my book, The Art of Tough. People don't know what happened. Remember, there were big arguments throughout the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. How are you going to take care of health care? People don't have it. And if they have it and they get sick, they lose it. They lose their insurance. What are we going to do? And we knew we had to fix it. The far left wanted a single-payer plan. That was not going to happen for reasons too many to go over here. It wasn't going to happen. And um, I supported a bill called Medicare for All Who Want It, which would have been a way to get into a government plan. That didn't go either. So now we're back to the drawing board. I what thought, by the way, yeah. at the time, I thought that was the best idea. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it would be great. Because you, it was an opt-in. It was... And a plan it, that it was, was already the, working. Yes. Yes. It, I thought that was just right right way to pitch this and, and make it work for everybody. I know. And this, the problem with that, it turned out, was some people just want to make it mandatory. And a lot of us said, don't make it mandatory because some people are happy with what they have. Make it whoever wants it. Sort of like a public option that we tried to get through Obamacare. That would have been the same idea. Well, so to make a long story as short as I possibly can, I've been through the healthcare wars since, since I ran for the Senate in 93. Could never get anything done. And Barack had this notion of having these, um, a way to go to a marketplace and use the capitalistic system we have to go to the marketplace where all the insurers would compete for your business and then 
he and a lot of us wanted to add the public option. If you couldn't get anything there, you could go for something like that. That got voted down by one vote. Oh. It breaks my heart. Um, but now we're at the end and we've got the bill. And the bill is done. It needed 60 votes to get over a filibuster. And one of my Democratic friends, Ben Nelson from Nebraska, said, I can't vote for it because it covers abortion. And I said, but hardly anybody gets abortions. If you look at the scheme, this I can't, Barbara, I can't, I can't. So now we have a big meeting with myself, Patty Murray, the women, my staff, and um, Harry Reid and Chuck Schumer, and the leadership. What are we going to do? They said, Barbara, you come up with something. <laughs> you <laughs> that was what it they out. came up with, was you come up with something. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So I'm sitting there and I'm... Was it Harry Reid that said that to you? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Harry and Chuck. And so he says, Chuck will be the guy who will run between you and Ben and go back and forth with things. I tried to come up with a bunch of things. Ben said no. Then I came up with a really smart thing to solve the problem. And my staff, we... We got it. We said, okay, supposing we say abortion coverage is not mandated, but if you want it, you have to pay for it yourself with your own check. Because the issue was anything that has any government funding. Using the taxpayer dollars. In any way. Right. So I found out that abortion coverage is very, 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 very cheap. It's a couple of dollars a month. I mean, it wasn't like a big thing. And so, bottom line, we presented it. We said, there's no mandate. Nobody has to cover it. But if you want it, you can have it if you pay with your own check. So the first response from the pro-choice groups are, we hate this. This is a terrible thing. You know, it's like, we can't do this. I said, do you really want to lose Obamacare over the abortion issue? And Americans are going to go, What? We could have had and should have had and would have had and could have had a marketplace. And they said, you're right. Mm. And we got it done. And it was, I'll never forget, it was a snowy night. It sounds like a thriller, you know. <laughs> the snow is coming down. <laughs> and we, we solved it. And, um, you know, nobody ever knows about it. It was one of those quiet things. Wow. And we got Obamacare with 60 votes. And Ben and I hugged that night and said, Thank goodness, you know. He didn't, he didn't want to bring it down, and I, did, I didn't want abortion to be the reason it was brought down. So those are the ways you get things done. I want to bring you back into California for a second. Yeah. <clears throat> My cousin, uh, I think you know Leanne Ager. You try yeah. to get her out of co- uh, prison? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to get her out of prison. No, not okay. at all. I was just checking. But she did <laughs> wire me a question. Oh, okay. <clears throat> are you saying anybody <laughs> associated with the high-speed rail might be in prison? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> so Leanne is the chairperson of the California Transportation Committee. And here's her question. Okay. Okay. Is there any chance of more federal funds for the high-speed rail system right. in California? Well, the first thing to tell her is I don't know because <laughs> I haven't been there since 2017. Right. But the, I have advice for her. She needs to go to uh, Alex Padilla, who's on the he, she, he's our uh, now uh, our senator. He sits on Environment and Public Works Committee, which would authorize it. And so I definitely think uh, she should call him and say, Barbara Boxer suggested it, and find out. I think, you know, because we've had so many overruns and so many issues, yeah. it's really almost up to Gavin Newsom, our governor. Is, if he, is he still pushing very hard for it? Um, can we prove that the money's well spent and make the argument because there's so much battle over transportation funds? But she should call the senator. Well, she's only allowed two incoming calls two, a week. Yes, could so be hard. But next yeah. time I'm allowed to call her, I'll, I'll mention that to her. <laughs> I don't know which one of you is the straight man. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> uh, you, you wrote two books before you wrote The, uh, the Art of Tough. Yes, I wrote a couple of novels. Novels. And, and then I, but I also wrote another book called Strangers in the Senate, which was a nonfiction but very old book. It was right after I won in 93. Oh. And I wrote that book, and it's, um, 
It's just really about issues. It's not a memoir, but, you know, it just basically lays out, how did I ever do this? Talks about Anita Hill, and it's, it's an interesting picture of what was on everybody's mind and the women's movement. So, and I, I'm just going to tell you a, a great story about why I called it Strangers in the Senate. It's a great story. So flashback to the Clarence Thomas hearing, and Anita Hill comes out and she says, I was harassed by Clarence Thomas. And uh, Joe Biden, who's the chairman of the judiciary, says, oh, we're not opening up the hearings. We're done. We're done with the hearings. Mm. And so the women of the House, there were like 23 of us, we went nuts. We said, you have to open up the hearings. No matter what you do with Clarence Thomas, this has to be on the record. She has a right to be heard. And um, no, no comment. So we decide to walk over to the Senate. And it's a very iconic photo of myself, Pat Schroeder, Patsy Mann. Some of these women are not with us. Um, and we walk, and Nancy Pelosi was was in the house at the time she said you guys walk over to the senate knock on the door and ask george mitchell who was the demic he was the senate democratic leader he was the leader of this of the whole senate if he would fight to open up the hearings you guys go there and we'll make some speeches on the floor of the house and cause a ruckus so she was there causing a ruckus in the house and i'm causing <laughs> a, a ruckus and the picture in front of the, in the book is, is so great it people said why were you, Barbara Boxer, in the front up the steps and not Pat Schroeder's? Well, it was Pat's idea, but I was just a Californian and I was used to exercising, so I ran up the steps. <laughs> you got you to walk faster. Faster than she. <laughs> but here's the way we got to the title of the book. Um, we get up to the top and a woman opens the door like that. And I didn't realize at the time, because I wasn't a senator. I was running for the Senate that behind there are all the senators eating lunch. And we knock on the door and we say, we're six members of the House. We want to come in and we want to talk to the senators because you cannot close down these hearings. Anita Hill needs to have a voice. And um, she says, I'm sorry. We don't allow strangers in the Senate. Oh. And I say to her, and since she has really apologized, I said, what are you coming up with that language? <laughs> We've spent a hundred years plus, be- all of us here in politics. How could you say that? And she said, it's an expression we use. It turned out she made it up. <laughs> and she later apologized. So I called the book Strangers in the Senate, and I recount how we were greeted in that way. The reason I add that is, that was my first book I ever wrote myself. Um, my daughter helped me with it. And we go through, you know, the history of women in Congress. But anyway, then I did the two novels with, uh, with Mary Rose Oates, not Mary Rose Oates, Mary Rose Hayes, who had written some novels. And I worked with her, and I came up sort of with a plot. And it was fun to, it's very hard for someone who's not, you know, a novelist. But it was fun to write those. I was I, I was I was just looking at them like that's so interesting to me that you're doing <laughs> well, novels. I, yeah. All right. Um, well, I, I'm not doing novels. I did. You novels. did novels. Okay. It's like everybody thinks I have to write a novel, <laughs> and I did too, and that was fine. And, and are you done being a TV star? Also, you were on Murphy Brown, Gilmore <laughs> Girls, Parks and oh, Recreation, God. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Is there more of this in the future? Well, you never say never. Somebody said to me the other day, would you do a walk-on? I said, yeah, as long as it's as myself, because I'm not an actress, but I can go on as myself. But my favorite in the world was a Larry David. And I will Uh, tell you, I really want to say to the listeners, if you really want to crack up, get that that particular um, uh, show. First of all, the way Larry David works, he's a genius. He doesn't have a script. Yeah, there's no script. He ad-li- no. Everybody ad-libs it. Everybody ad-libs it. What he does is he, <laughs> he brings you together for like an hour before you going on, and he says, here's the story. And in my case, is you're going to the dry cleaners, and then you're doing this, and you're going to host that. And he says, that's it. And uh, I'm going to come up to you and, 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 and ask you to pass a law, and you're going to answer it. And I thought, this is never going to work. <laughs> and my husband was with me. And we, the whole thing took place like in a lobby of a building in L.A. It was so funny. <laughs> but he never did take two. And he, he thought I was funny. 
I was funny because I was, you know, how I, we're together and I can have a sense of humor, but I was myself. And he added a little piece for me at the end. And I urge people to watch it, not because of me, but the whole idea of it is so funny. If you've ever gone to the dry cleaners and come out with the wrong suit or sweater, <laughs> that's the focus of his whole thing and how I had to pass a law to fix it and so on and so forth. That's but so great. it's so funny. Just sitting alone in a room with him for a couple of hours oh. must yeah. be crazy. All right, we're, we're running out of time, but okay. I want to touch on this because... Uh, um, when this when this is released, this will have been some a, a few weeks ago. But on Martin Luther King Day, uh, you've gotten involved in local issues, yeah. and Section 14 is something that yep. you marched with uh, uh, the folks from Section 14, the descendants thereof, and uh, you've gotten involved in this issue. Yes, um, you know, if I crashed into your bike. Patrick and you you were you were physically okay but your bike was destroyed and I said Patrick I am so sorry my heart break I you'd be right to say are you gonna get me a new bike you know you can't burn down someone's house and go I am so sorry now I'm very proud of the Palm Springs Council for apologizing God knows it's hard the worst words we ever want to say is, I am sorry, you know, because none of us likes to step up. But they did. But they can't just step up and then walk away and say, it's too complicated. And so the reason I got involved with the team that's trying to resolve this is because I think if we have a solution that is targeted and tailored, we can do something for these folks. And that that's why I joined the team, to solve it. I don't want to see lawsuits and stuff. I hate that. I was very impressed with the language you used, and you just used it again, targeted Target. and tailored. Yeah. Because it is, it, it's a hot-button issue. In totally. The and I, but I think your position is so reasonable and, and, and correct, and the approach is so right. So. Yeah, and if you meet these people who suffered this, it really changed their whole life trajectory. Well, of course. And generations. And, and, you know, I sit here with you, and you, you've asked me about, you, you've brought me down nostalgia lane in my own life. I never lived in a home that my parents owned. They never owned a home. So when I went out there with my husband, I know I just get the chills thinking about what that home meant and what it did for me in Marin County. We bought that home in the 60s for $40,000, okay? And we were so nervous and it was a hundred and something $50 a month mortgage because we put down every last $15,000 we had. And... I remember the first time something went wrong and the garage door broke, Stu said, I think we made a mistake. <laughs> I said, no, calm down. We'll fix it. It'll be okay. It. That house, and I am not exaggerating, that house got my kids through college and law school. We got the money out of there to make it more beautiful. And we sold it at such a great price. We were able to get a small place in the Bay Area, very small, and this wonderful lovely home here so if you take away someone's home and you don't help them figure out a way to replace it that mistake was done then it's wrong so we have to have here's the thing there's right there's wrong there's complicated and in my life people always say to me oh it's so complicated every time I want to solve a problem oh it's so complicated no let's uncomplicate it and in this case it is making sure it's tailored. And they've done it in Manhattan Beach. They've done this. And so I'm hopeful. And I don't know the end of this, but my role is to make sure that there's justice and it's not complicated and it's not too hard on anybody and we can avoid lawsuits and all this stuff and make Palm Springs look like they don't care because they do care. They're good people on the council. Anyway, that's I decided to help. We'll see what happens. Well, I love that you're involved and still in the fight. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, Barbara, did this was a thrill for me. Again, as I said at the very beginning, my mom's sitting somewhere with a big smile on her face right now because you were a personal hero. So, well, thank could you, you tell her I'm not in a rush to see her? 
We, we can all I talk do, to her. But when I do, <laughs> I'm going to send your love. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Senator Barbara Boxer. We are so appreciative. You know, I, I've been lucky enough to have crossed paths with you over the years, and uh, I, I just adore both you and Stuart, and Thank it you. was so special to have you come and spend time with us today. We so appreciate it. It was fun for me. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. First podcast in a bar? Absolutely. Oh, good. Okay. Well, Barbara was a host of a podcast, but she didn't do it in a bar. But that's what we do. If she did, she might still have it. (laughs) So this is Big Conversations Little Bar, and our guest was Senator Barbara Boxer. We're (laughs) delighted to have you. Our thanks to John McMullen. My thanks to Randy Florence, always the most researched, uh, most educated, careful co-host, except for that stuff with Sean and... And, 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 oh, and, yeah, that'll all get cut out of here. We'll have a three-minute <laughs> podcast by the time my stuff's cut out. <laughs> we always have fun here at Big Conversations Little Bar at Skip's Page Little Bar. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Big Conversations Little Bar, recorded on location at Skip Page's Little Bar in Palm Desert, California, the center of the Coachella Valley universe. This program is a production of the Mutual Broadcasting System. All episodes are available from BigConversationsLittleBar.com or from most major podcast portals, including Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. (laughs) 